ID the Future, a podcast about evolution and intelligent design. Hello, I'm Tom Gilson. Today on ID the Future, it's Neil Thomas, author of Taking Leave of Darwin, being interviewed by Hank Hanegraaff on the Hank Unplugged podcast. You'll hear the first part of that podcast here today with more to come soon. Well, welcome to another edition of the Hank Unplugged podcast. We are committed to bringing the most interesting, informative, and inspirational people directly to your earbuds, and today will be no exception. Today I'm hosting Neil Thomas. He wrote a book that I hope all of you will read, a book titled Taking Leave of Darwin. And before I formally introduce him, I want to underscore the significance of the subject matter that we're going to be talking about today. And I'll do that by starting out with the words that more consequences for society hinge on the issue of origins than on any other. Harvard scientist Ernst Meyer said this. He said that the Darwinian Revolution of 1859 was perhaps the most fundamental of all intellectual revolutions in the entire history of mankind. And as Dr. Michael Denton put it, the 20th century cannot be comprehended apart from the intellectual revolution that the theory of evolution produced. In fact, Denton dubbed the theory of macroevolution the great cosmogenic myth of the 20th century, a myth that has produced far-reaching consequences in every discipline of study in every level of education, and in every area of practice. Think about this. Karl Marx, the father of communism, saw in Darwinian evolution the scientific, the sociological support for an economic experiment that eclipsed even the carnage of Hitler's Germany. And Sigmund Freud, this is a great example, he, the founder of modern psychology, was also a faithful follower of Darwin. And his belief that man was merely a sophisticated animal led him to postulate that mental disorders were the vestiges of behavior that had been appropriate in earlier stages of evolution. So Denton was right. Evolution is one of the most spectacular examples in the history of humanity of how a highly speculative idea, an idea for which there's really no hard scientific evidence, has come to fashion the thinking of a whole society and to dominate the outlook of an age. The evolutionary misreading of the book of nature, well, it's simply breathtaking. And I suppose that this breathtaking cosmogenic myth needs to be exposed and to have it exposed by someone who is not a Christian, but rather a humanist rationalist is, well, I would say delicious. I think it's important to recognize that Neil Thomas, in writing this book, has been lauded by many intellectual luminaries. Neil Thomas has been called rightly a British humanities professor, 
a lifelong rationalist who once was rather confident in the claims of Darwinian orthodoxy. But as Michael B. has well said, and Michael B. is the author of Darwin's Black Box, Thomas's book, Taking Leave of Darwin, demonstrates the courageous and commendable willingness of a committed agnostic intellectual to change his mind about Darwin, to follow truth wherever it leads. The endorsement of this book by Dr. Paul Beasley Murray is also well worth repeating. I'm taking this from the cover of the book where Dr. Paul Beasley Murray says, taking leave of Darwin by Neil Thomas, a senior academic literary historian and a life member of the British Rationalist Association, is an unusual book. Why? Because it is an attack on the secular theory of evolution by a non-Christian. He goes on to say that Thomas describes the whole Darwinian edifice as an offense, not only to the best scientific practice, but even an offense to common sense. Indeed, he says that to attribute creative potential to nature, well, it's a deeply archaic, animistic way of thinking. And he concludes that with the naturalistic, materialistic alternative having failed so signally, we are left with no other choice but to consider the possibility of the God hypothesis. One other endorsement that deserves recognition as I kick off this podcast comes from Professor Michael Flannery. He says, well, much the same as what you have heard so far in the endorsements that I have communicated. He notes that Neil Thomas, a highly perceptive scholar, has laid bare the bold presumptuousness of the Darwinian faithful for what it is, namely a modern form of hoodwinking that fails an honest and unbiased test of history and logic. And so he says of taking leave of Darwin that it exposes the science of Darwinian evolution as not science, but scientism, as well as the explanatory power of natural selection, as will the paper tiger of nature read in tooth and claw. He concludes by saying, read this book and be fooled no longer. And that's exactly what I want people to do. The long introduction simply to say, this is a book that is must-reading, a book that you can find on the web at equip.org. We make it available for anyone who stands with us, shoulder to shoulder, in the battle for life and truth. You can get your copy on the web at equip.org. Again, the book available for anyone who stands shoulder to shoulder with us in the battle for life and truth. I want you to read this book. It is a book that I think is transcendently important, and I've spent many, many years on this subject myself. So when I say that, I'm talking about a book that is not only instructive, but a book that is very, very well written. With that, I want to introduce the author, Neil Thomas, and again, the book, Taking Leave of Darwin. Thanks so much for joining me on Hang Unplugged. You're welcome. So let's start with this. How did your journey start? 
your formal training and expertise are in classical studies in European languages. So what led you to write a book investigating evolutionary theory? Yeah, it came about even as a surprise to myself, actually, because I've been retired for a number of years now and have built something of a second career in the realm of small business. And I had sworn blue blind to my wife that I was not going to write another book. I've written many in my time on more abstruse subjects than this, I might say. One index of about 20 years ago, I was at a conference when a female academic from Oxford used the word memes, which is Richard Dawkins's word for transmissible cultural units from one person to another and so on. And I thought, well, why on earth bring memes to the feast? We've got enough jargon in literary criticism as it is. And I don't quite, you know, it was certainly a distaste for the crudities and distortions of sociobiology came into it. And a distaste for Richard Dawkins's drive to Darwinize the whole of human existence, as it seemed to me. That was at the intellectual level, and that was two decades ago when I was in post. I suppose latterly I've had a more visceral response. In a, <laughs> strange to relate, a, a dream I had, I just woke up with a start. I thought, well, Darwinism cannot be right. And I felt that all attempts by Darwinian successes by modern cosmologists like Lawrence Krauss and so on, to say that there was a process of automatism of some sort, they're rather vague on the, the details, informing and driving forth the universe and its evolution, seemed to me wrong, just <laughs> flat out wrong. And I think that's really what I thought, well, what can I do? And I thought, well, it's no good kicking yourself for being so credulous for so many decades. Do the responsible thing and try and research the matter, which I did. And the rest is history. I mean, it's an absorbing subject, as you know yourself very well. And it's an important subject. In fact, perhaps there's no other more important subject in the world. And so I was drawn into it. And it was from that point of departure that the book actually began to be written. Yeah, well, talk about some of the implications right at the outset. I mean, if you think about the implications of Darwinian evolution, the impact it's had on civilization, it is no small thing. I mean, one of the things that immediately comes to mind, of course, is eugenics. Mm -hmm. And eugenics has had a huge impact on people around the world, and its origin goes back to the work that Darwin popularized. Mm, yes. I mean, there are a number of negative byproducts that Darwin has thrown out into the world. I wasn't concerned with that directly, although I am beginning to get interested in this whole subject of sociobiology, as it was called. They call it evolutionary psychology now for tactical reasons because sociobiology was seen as something rather suspect latterly. What I would say in response to the question I think you're asking me to respond to is that whilst I have not been for the bulk of my adult life a practicing Christian, my wife is a practicing Christian and I have many Christian friends, and one of the things that has annoyed me about this is that in the year 2008, 
the Anglican Church, the Church of England, came out to deliver a fulsome apology to Charles Darwin rather late in the day for getting him wrong. And I thought to myself, well, I don't think the church did get Darwin wrong. I think Darwin was wrong and the church has in a kind of genuflection to the false god of science, which can be as flawed as any other god, as we've come to realize, that it was a, <laughs> that I felt that the whole démarche of apologizing was wrong, because I think that the church has more of a title to rationality, if you like, in the sense that it has a conception of an unmoved mover, a first cause, a causa causarum, and to give it its technical term, that something must have an origin. Nothing comes of nothing, to give it the old Latin tag translated. And I do feel, you may call it a vicarious feeling, because as I say, I have been more of what we would call in Britain a humanist than a Christian for many decades, but I do feel a sense of injustice that it's as if the jury has been misdirected by a mischievous judge. And I feel that perhaps one of my strengths, and I make no bones about it, I'm not a scientist, I'm interested in science, but I'm not a scientist, but I do feel that I bring a sense of unbiased analysis to the whole thing. I mean, biologists after Darwin, have been marking their own homework for 160 years plus now. And I feel that the kind of tendentious bias that they brought to their studies has really not been correct. It's been something of a disgrace. And I simply wanted to try and correct what I think is a grand historical misperception. Sorry, that sounds a bit grandiose, but you have asked me to try and link to the point that you made. Yeah, and I think you did so ably. I'm thinking right now as you speak about an epigraph in your book by Cambridge etymologist William Thorpe, who said that it was odd that scientists are so susceptible to self-hypnotic indoctrination, <laughs> you know. And, <laughs> and I think in this regard that it is possible that we ought to consider a stakeholder interest and incentives interests and incentives that affect the research of academics and science no less than in the humanities. The shoddy research of university professors, which is repeated ad nauseum by journalists. So what I see at hand, and we may differ here, but a serious case of what I used to call Christophobia, but deophobia. In other words, you have mm -hmm. to explain everything in a naturalistic sense, even if the evidence points in a completely different direction, because there are stakeholder interests. Mm. Yes. I am actually preparing a would-be second volume, and I've come across the same feeling that you've had, that there is a kind of deophobia, a kind of resignation to the fact that God is something of the past, and it is not something that we as modern rational human beings have to contend with. And so I would agree there. And I've tried in my latest book to give a kind of snapshot of Oxford in the 1850s and 60s, the events surrounding the famous 
debate between Wilberforce and Huxley and so on, Huxley being Darwin's representative, to try and see what changed in the national psyche between those times and why it was that such a flimsy idea as natural selection was able to gain ascendancy, not without problems, but certainly over time, people began to pile into it as the kind of valid explanation of our existential condition, so to speak. So I would agree with you in that respect. How is it, as you put it, that a less than stellar schoolboy and student came upon that theory which others had sought unsuccessfully for more than a century mm -hmm. before his birth. Yes, this is a strange one. What happened is there were a number of books on evolution, some of which had been authored by Darwin's own grandfather, Erasmus Darwin, and others in the 1840s, which made evolution something that was in the air. And that's maybe part of the answer to your question, my question, as to why because people had been already softened up by the idea of evolution of some sort to come into it. But when Robert Chambers wrote his book on evolution in the mid-1840s, he was a Scottish man of affairs, a literary man as well. He came up with a number of ideas, but he didn't put forward what was known as the vera causa, the real cause, the actuating mechanism which could trigger evolution. And I think that both Darwin and his competitors, as it turned out, Wallace, were interested in being able to put their hand on such a lever in order to explain how changes could come about in naturalistic terms. And I think that in a way, it was a kind of uh, well, I say in the book, they were acting just as much as conquistadors as actual dispassionate scientists. They were trying to get one over on all previous publishers in the realm of evolution in order to say, aha, now we have found the real cause, the vera causa of why evolution should occur. So I think there was a kind of macho, perhaps even chauvinistic idea that, you know, that the British Empire, which had corralled so much of the globe, was now leading the way in science, in biological science as well, in such a way, I think that Darwin was thinking, that it could compete legitimately with geology as a perfectly down-to-earth natural science in the way that Darwin was just as keen on geology as on biology in, in his earlier years anyway. And he felt that perhaps that he was raising the status of biology to a truly dis scientific level. Yeah, I think one of the things that you bring out in the book so importantly is that after Darwin, you had this false antagonism between religion and science that moved to sort of the forefront of people's thinking. And so you mm. had this idea that miracles certainly weren't possible. Everything could be explained through natural processes. Whereas yes. before, the idea was that miracles were not only possible, but they were necessary to make sense of the universe that we inhabit. I mean, the beginning of life, the information of the genetic code, irreducible mm. complexity in biological systems, the phenomenon of the human mind and so forth. All of these things pointed to the possibility of miracles, but now 
everything becomes naturalistic and you have this bifurcation and battle between science and religion that hadn't been there before, at mm. least not to the extent that it came to be after Darwin. No. And even in Darwin's day, many of Darwin's own inner circle, who were themselves explorers and scientists in their own right, did not actually accept Darwin, or if they did accept Darwin, it was under what the French called erasure. Yes, we accept part of what he's saying, but we reserve the right to issue a kind of minority report of our own. And many of those so-called disciples of Darwin were interested in advancing a form of theistic evolution for the very reasons that you've given, that while what we observe today might go on naturalistically, there must have been an initial impetus to give it shape and form and the kind of complexity that you refer to there. So, yes, I think possibly the kind of Gimlet-eyed doctrinaire zealots that we associate with Darwinism these days, and you may know who I'm talking about, but I will not mention his name. Um, Does it start with a D? <laughs> it might well. <laughs> We're not represented so much until the period after the so-called new synthesis, after the 1920s, I think really from 1860 to 1920, Darwinian ideas were debated as part of a discussion document. That's how many people regarded it. And even Darwin himself, you remember, he issued six editions in all of his Origin of Species, each time trying to sort of make things right with those people who had disagreed with this, that, and the other. And so it's as if he himself was not sure of his own ground. And, I mean, one of the ways that he wasn't sure of his own ground was the whole matter of his Christian faith, which has been done to death, I'm aware, many times. But I think it is worth talking about, maybe in this context, because he, he had this kind of riven mind about it. He was, one foot was in the sort of the Christian camp, and the other in the atheist camp. And he wasn't really able to square those things, to reconcile those two things, right up until the date of his death in 1882. And we may think, well, this is a bit funny, isn't it? Because intelligent people usually come to some kind of resolution of their crisis of faith or whatever they are. But that's not necessarily the case, because... One of Darwin's near contemporaries, George Eliot, the um, Marianne Evans, the author who took a male pseudonym, is known for having been a great agnostic humanist. You call it what you like. But as a critical cockshoot pointed out many years ago in 1964 in his book on the English agnostics, that Marianne Evans, George Eliot, even though, the way he puts it, even though she gave up a formal belief in Christian faith and so on, she yet held on very vividly to a notion of providence, the idea that things were going to go in the right direction. And that is only really possible 
If you think about it, if you have some kind of residual sort of faith, and I think the same can be applied to Darwin. He was a Victorian as well. They were of the same generation. And this was the kind of thought way of that particular zeitgeist. Yeah. And I think one of the things that ought to be pointed out is that from my perspective, at least, and I'd be interested in yours, it seems to me that Darwin, as you point out, was involved in the Christian faith. In fact, he yes. said that when he set out on the HMS Beagle, he was a Bible-believing creationist, and he said he did not then, at that point, doubt the strict and literal truth of every word in the Bible. Now, What's interesting about that is it seems to me that Darwin read the Bible in a wooden literalistic fashion, out of Mm. which comes nothing but nonsense. Mm -hmm. And I think the same thing applies to how he read the book of nature. So he read the Bible incorrectly, but he also read the book of nature incorrectly. Both are a fundamentalism a fundamentalism, you might say, on the right, and a fundamentalism on the left, but both fundamentalism, not following truth wherever it leads, but rather reading something in a way that it ought not to be read. And as a result of that, I mean, there are people like Malcolm Muggeridge who say that Mm -hmm. science could be as dogmatic as any church, and with Mm -hmm. less justification, and its devotees as bigoted as any country clergyman, a quote that you have in the book. Yes, Yes, that's right. He did write that in a biography, yes, uh, Samuel Butler, yeah. I think that people have tried to disentangle the confusions of Darwin's religious views many times over. And I must say that I think that we have to accept that I think there was a critic, an American critic called Neil Gillespie, who wrote about his epistemological double vision, that he retained that to the end of his days. I mean, in my latest book, what I've been quite fascinated, I mean, it's one of the cases where my previous incarnation as a literary critic has come in. When Darwin, and nobody else has commented on this as far as I know, when Darwin went aboard the Beagle originally in the 1830s, one of the books that he took with him, and he said it was his most favorite resource or some words to that effect, was Milton's Paradise Lost. Now, the point about Milton's Paradise Lost, it's, it's an absolutely gorgeous verse epic. It's a bit like hearing organ music, it's most sonorous in English verse. But the point about Paradise Lost is that many people Milton himself said that he was writing it as a theodicy to justify the works of God to men, as he put it in his introduction. But some later critics, and not only just later critics, but many contemporary critics, and most signally an English critic of the 1930s called William Empson, um, in his book called Milton's God, have suggested quite the opposite, that the true hero of Paradise Lost is not God, who comes over as a rather legalistic kind of person, I have to admit, but rather Satan himself, who is this kind of rebel thrown out of heaven with the rebellious angels, and some of whose lines are really worthy of all all revolutionaries, some modern like Che Guevara or whoever you like. They are sort of 
classic incendiary revolutionary rhetoric. And William Empson and others have said that this is really where Darwin was at. He had a kind of grudging respect for Satan as the one who had set himself up against the Christian God. So I think one has to conclude at the end of the day that Darwin's thinking, such as it was, was a bit of a mess. He was not a crisp theologian. He wasn't a really sharp conceptual thinker or philosopher in the way that we would define that term in the 20th and 21st centuries. He was somebody who simply suffered with the rest of us sometimes as not knowing quite what they meant or even where they were coming from mentally me speaking, that is, spiritually speaking. <laughs> well said. That was Hank Hanegraaff and Neil Thomas on the Hank Unplugged podcast, talking about Thomas's new book, Taking Leave of Darwin. Check out the book at Amazon.com, Taking Leave of Darwin. And be sure to come back to ID the Future for more to come soon. I'm Tom Gilson. Thanks for listening. Visit us at idthefuture.com and intelligentdesign.org. This program is Copyright Discovery Institute and recorded by its Center for Science and Culture.